Welcome back to another episode of the Not Almost There podcast. I have my great friend, Russ Rausch, in the house. How are you today, Russ? I'm doing great, Joe. It's great to be here. Great to see you. Hey, man. It's great to have you. We've known each other for a few years now. The first time we met was at our refuel conference in Naperville where you spoke. And uh, I just have really enjoyed our friendship. You've taught me a lot about how to use the power of the mind to relax when you're under stressful situations, how to have a performance mindset, and a variety of things. But before we dive into techniques and tools that uh, you've given me and many others over the, the years, how did you get started in this in the first place? I'd love to know a little bit more of your backstory. Yeah, so to go way back, I was born in Kansas a long time ago. and. Uh, I was one of many kids, but I was the first one to go to college in my family. So that's kind of the background that I started from. I went to college, I ended up majoring in accounting, and then fast forward all the way to my early 40s, I'm in Chicago and I'm in the hedge fund business, the technology and hedge fund business, and doing relatively well. I mean, a lot better than I thought I would do as a small town kid in Kansas, but not really happy, like feeling unfulfilled, a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, a lot of problems sleeping, ruminating on things, and really just looking for answers. I guess the biggest feeling I had was, what's the point of doing everything I've done if it doesn't feel any better than this? And so that started me down a road of looking into what it ended up being neuroscience, how the mind works. Because ultimately, how we're experiencing the world has a lot more to do with what's going on in here than what's going on out there. And so I started down this road in my early 40s when I was working at a hedge fund and a technology firm. And I just started learning about how the mind works. And it started to change the way I experienced the world. And then I developed this passion to be able to teach other people what I learned. And it went from a hobby then to a part-time business to a full-time business. Was there a pivotal moment in your, your journey when you were working for the hedge fund that you were just like... I can't do this anymore, like this is my passion, or how did that unfold? Yeah, and it actually goes right back before the hedge fund at the technology firm I was working for. I remember vividly sitting in my office and again having this revelation of why not just go back to Kansas and live a simple life if I can't enjoy this life? And it was frustrating because it wasn't like I had any major problems. So I couldn't look around and go, well, here's all the big problems I had. It's just a bunch of small problems. So that was that seminal moment of knowing that something had to change. But I never thought, nowhere in the process was there's a big dream to start a company and build a company. It was really just repair myself and it evolved into where it's evolved to today. But how do you go from those ideas to even having the guts to create a company from it or to start down that path? Yeah, it's funny you say the guts. Uh, and I wouldn't have, it's funny, the business that I'm in, the performance mindset, it changes your mind and so that you are able to assess risk better. Because some people can never leave their job because they're afraid to leave their job. And some people will jump around from job to job because they're chasing, you know, the grass is always greener. And so my ability to be able to start and form VP and grow it to the extent that we've had has everything to do with my mindset. And so there's years of me just having a passion and learning on the weekends and at nights how the mind works. And by the time you get through that process, you're able to put that into practice and that's how it evolved into a business. And I've, I've heard you say 
on a few other podcasts before that a few books and videos really triggered this emotional response in yourself to know, like, I really need to understand my brain more to understand why I'm not happy, why I have all of the things that I think would make me happy, yet I'm not happy. What were those books or videos that you've watched back then or, or read? I think the biggest one was Joe Bolte Taylor's My Stroke of Insight. It's a TED Talk, a lot of people have seen it. But as a reminder, she's a brain scientist at Harvard University. In fact, that's her whole world, as you would expect. Like that's, she's all about that. And then she has certain family relationships. So externally, her external world is built of these two things. So she loses the left hemisphere of her brain. And so now she really can't do either one of those things because the left hemisphere is our analytical mind. You know, how we past, the future, how am I gonna do things today? How am I gonna get things done? That's gone. But what she experiences is something she called, the experience was nirvana, complete connection. I'm complete, I'm whole. I mean, think about that for a second. Yeah. How would you like to experience that? And so that's all she experienced. Now the problem is she can't function the way she used to because she doesn't have the analytical. And then she heals eight years later and now has, she has what she calls a brain balance. I can feel complete, I can feel whole, I'm good enough, I'm connected to something bigger. She can't explain why that is, it's just an experience. But then you can also have this, I have to think about the past, I have to think about the future, I have my to-do list, I have things I want to get better at. Can you imagine the merger of those two together? Right. And that is what brain balance is. And so when I saw that video, it really connected the dots for me that this is an inter, you solve this problem internally, not externally. And I think the other thing I'd add to that too is I had a couple friends in professional sports and this is when it really tilted my thinking. How can somebody playing pro sports have a bad life experience? Because when you think about what that means, number one, it doesn't just mean that they're making money and that they're famous or whatever. And by the way, most pro athletes are not famous. <laughs> most people don't know who they are. Right. But they're yeah. doing exactly what they love. Aren't we told that that's a key? They're helping other people. They're always pursuing worthwhile goals. Most of them are in really good shape and they have amazing relationships. Like you're going down the box and checking everything you're supposed to do. And so that really started, between that and the Jill Bolte Taylor video, I started realizing, man, this is an internal thing and this is pervasive. So back then, what, what were the few things you were doing to really start turning around that mindset and, and you starting to move toward that happiness that you were, you were seeking? Like what were the actionable things that, that you were doing to, to change that? The first thing I think that has to happen is number one, realizing it's an internal job, not an external job. And that's not easy to do because we're totally conditioned to believe it's external. But then secondly, you have to understand what the brain's doing. And my lens really comes through the limbic brain or if you want to call it the automatic brain. One of the things I have people do in every training session I do is I tell them stop thinking, have them sit there for a minute and realize they can't do it. And so I'm introducing them to their automatic brain. Now as soon as you do that exercise, it almost creates the expectation that I don't want you to think and that thinking is bad. But I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to show people that they're not choosing most of their thoughts. Their brain's doing it automatically. And then we extend that on to emotion. You're not choosing your emotions. I'm not choosing my emotions either. So to answer your question, the first step is to realize I'm having all these thoughts, I'm having all these emotions. I'm not picking them. 
They're happening automatically. And that's what I would call awareness. I'm not my thoughts and emotions. It's something I'm experiencing. In fact, my brain's choosing it. So that would be step one. And then step two, you could start to think, well, this is the enemy. <laughs> These automatic thoughts and emotions are screwing me up all the time. It's like the Mark Twain quote, you know, I'm an old man who's known many problems. Most of them never happened. Right. And so you start to make, you can't make an enemy out of it. You have to see why your brain's doing that. Then you have to get in line with it and embrace it and ex know why it's doing it and know how to respond to it. And most of kind of what we're taught is the opposite of what works. We're sort of told, don't beat yourself up. Don't worry. Don't let that thing go from the past. So now I'm actually putting myself in a position of fighting with my brain versus knowing why my brain's doing something and working with it. That's pretty fascinating because there's a lot of things in life that you can get through with surrender. Um, having worked with folks like around this podcast and even my jujitsu practice, like the best thing you could do is just relax. Um, one of the things that Jesse Itzler told me on, on actually the first, first podcast I ever did was the best thing you could do when you're in freezing water, because David Goggins made him jump in this freezing lake, is just surrender. And I think that is very akin to what you're talking about, to surrender your thoughts and just acknowledge the fact that you are going to have those stressful moments and maybe you're not always going to be happy. And once you start to understand that, then you could deal with it in a certain way. That's exactly right, Joe. In fact, you know, surrender is a word that I don't like to bring up real fast because it drives high performers crazy, right? And I work a lot in pro sports and in the corporate world. So you don't necessarily want to lead to that with that, but ultimately that's where you have to get. Right. <laughs> it's not saying you're surrendering everything, but you're surrendering the things that you can't control. And a lot of things that are for sure going to happen no matter what. Like no matter what. So I love that. Like getting cold water, you have to surrender. Right. And even like walking through a rainstorm where you go, I don't want to get wet. You just surrender and you'll start to notice how it feels different. Yeah, another analogy going back to that jujitsu example was um, what, what my coach tells me is like pretend like you are a mattress, right? If you, if you pick up a box spring, that's pretty easy to lift, but you try and get a mattress like on a bunk bed, good luck. You know, it's all over the place. Why? Because it's not stiff. It is just, it, it just kind of falls. It's really hard to control, but when you're under a stressful situation and someone's choking you in martial arts, the best thing you could do is just go limp. If you stiffen up, that's when someone can actually tap you out and get the better choke on you. So it's, it, it's just amazing how the more you mature in life, the more you realize there's all these analogies and there's all these things that happen just not in one aspect of life, but all over the place. And it all comes back to that, to just kind of surrendering that for those moments. And another thing that I've, I've talked about a few times is when things tend to get super tough, like you just have a day and everything's going wrong. And I'm sure we all had those days. The best thing that I found is just this incontrollable laugh because things couldn't get worse. And granted, like they can always get worse, but in your mind, in that day, things are just one thing after another is going bad and you, once you start laughing, it's just like, it kind of puts things into perspective for yourself. So that's another aspect of like 
the surrender mentality is like, hey, you know what? Like, bring it on. And then all of a sudden, you start to have them, and you start you start to think differently, and you and things start to be okay, and you're not stressed up. You're not like that that um, that bed that's just super stiff. You're more of the the mattress, and you're like, come on, try and lift me. Yeah, I think those are great analogies. And I think part of where I'm trying to get people and where I always try to get myself is getting your expectations in line with reality. Because a lot of times we're taught, think about what you want and be positive all the time, almost like you're creating those bad days if you don't think the right way. Versus what I would say is like teaching everybody, hey, we're gonna have these really bad days and you're gonna feel stressed out at times. And so when that happens, you go, okay, this is normal. This happens to everybody. and that brings it down, that brings the emotion down, just going, hey, this is normal activity. And now I'm in a position of like what you're saying to either surrender, laugh at it, you know, like Lieutenant Dan in uh, Forrest Gump fighting, you know, saying, is this all you got at the top right. of the shift? Like whatever you wanna do, you have some agency then to respond to that versus just being locked in it and being in this turmoil. So I know you have an acronym C, so that'd be the separation part, right? You're separating the reality from your emotions, you know that you're gonna have these, these kind of mental struggles, you're separating that out. What's the next step in that? Yeah, so we have three steps. The first one is expect the expected. Almost everything that's happening to you in life should be expected, it's happening to almost everybody. Not exactly everything, but 90% of what's bothering us. And then the, the C that the separate just stands for, I'm having an experience. This isn't, my emotions aren't me, they're just something I'm experiencing. And the way I talk about the separation is if you drank, if we had four shots of tequila here and we downed them, four each, we'd feel different. And we wouldn't say the world just got weird, we'd say it's the tequila. Mm -hmm. And we'd also know it's temporary and it's gonna pass. So when I say separate from your emotion, that's what I'm saying, you're having an experience. Chemical got projected in your brain, it's temporary. Unlike the tequila, well maybe there's a reason, but there's always a reason why your brain's doing that. So that's the separate, the embrace is kind of what you brought up, what we've been talking about. Just experience it, embrace it, lean into it, or just observe it. That's what embrace means. That, because the chemical's been released, you can't undrink the tequila. So what's the best way to process the alcohol or the neurotransmitter, and that is the embracing. And then evaluating is then moving to your thinking mind from your emotional mind and go, I'm having this experience, this is how it feels, I'm not denying that, but what am I gonna do about it? Can I do anything about it? And if we had the tequila, we, wouldn't, we couldn't stop feeling tipsy or whatever, but we could go to our thinking mind and go, okay, what, how should I handle this experience I'm having right now? So that's the separate, the embrace, and then the evaluate. Got it. When you were working with pro athletes, because now you have, uh, Vision Pursuit has grown over the last decade plus? Yeah, about six years. Okay, yeah. so almost, uh, yeah. almost a decade. Well, yeah, at probably eight years. It depends on when you say we started, but yeah. Got it. How have you been able to improve the game of these athletes that are under immense stress? I was watching the U.S. Open yesterday, and I was just thinking about being a golfer in the U.S. Open and how stressful that is. There's no hiding anything, right? Like you're, you're golfing, and every single stroke means means the world to the golfers at, at, on those moments. And um, it's I know a lot of them have uh, sports psychologists that that hang out with them. 
Um, and then you have these teams of people that help them get through those, those, uh, the games mentally. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, what have you seen working with your athletes really work? And, how, and it's easier said than done in some ways in the sense that you can say, well, don't think, separate those emotions. But when you're up there and you're putting and you're one to two strokes away from either winning or losing the U.S. Open, how do you balance that? It's a great question. And the cool thing is, and what's been cool about my work, 20% of our revenues are from pro and college sports, 80% are from the corporate world. And I also do some pro bono work in high schools. It's all the same stuff. So the same thing I'd say to a high school student who's struggling over their anxiety of test taking and where they're gonna go to college is exactly, I'd use different examples, but the same format I would use for a pro basketball player trying to be better at three point shots. And what I would say is number one, expect the expected. Going back to golf, if we had any golfers in here, and I don't know if you're a golfer, and we said, hey, let's list out the challenges. I'm an aspiring golfer. Aspiring <laughs> golfer, well, you're ahead of me then. But if we said, hey, list out the struggles we're gonna go through in the US Open, they could list them out. List out the emotions you're probably gonna experience, they could list them out. And this set seems so simple, but that little exercise to say, oh, this is completely normal, what I'm about to go through, helps bring it down a notch. You should do the same in the corporate world. If we got together one of your teams from Dealer Inspire and said, what are the ex stresses and challenges and emotions you're gonna face the three, next three months? They wouldn't know everything, but they'd know 80% of them. And so you go, okay, expect this completely normal, but this is gonna happen. That makes sense? Yeah, it totally does. That, that is huge, and pro athletes are never told that, they're not, I shouldn't say they're never told that, they're often told kind of this positive language of think about what you want and think about your goal, think about yourself succeeding, making the putt, making the great shots. They're inundated with that outcome-based thinking versus expect some challenges and adversity. That's exactly what's gonna happen. And then when those happen and you're up to make that putt, like you're talking about, or you're trying to do a drive, and you don't like the, the wind or the fairway or whatever, instead of saying, don't think, I teach the athletes to, hey, you're gonna experience stress and anxiety, you're gonna be in your head, what if I don't hit this right? Oh, I don't like the wind out of the left. And you learn to be able to execute while that's going on. You don't stop it from going on. You see it for what it is. And I like working with three-point shooters because three-point shootings, either they're making it or they're not making. A lot of that other stuff is very subjective. But I like to tell a three-point sh shooter, you can make a shot, you can make whatever you can make, whatever your talent level is, no matter what your mind's doing. Because as soon as I start to try to control my mind, be in the moment, be in the zone, quit thinking, believe I can make this shot, no matter what you want to say, that's a narrative that I'm going on in my mind instead of just playing basketball. And after a while, you'll be able to say, if you practice this, you can go, I can make a putt, do a drive, do a meeting, take a test, no matter what my brain's doing. And I call that true confidence. Because the feeling of confidence is fleeting and out of our control. The feeling of being good enough is fleeting and out of control. It goes up and down. And so that's kind of a long answer, but that's really the format. It's expect, expected, see, and then control the controllable. And from your work with the athletes, how much of their performance is, is in their mind? I would think it's a lot of it because at that point they've trained a ton they're putting in the work 
I would assume 99% of them are maybe 1% super talented, doesn't need to as much. Um, but how, how much of that, their achievements are coming from mental strength? It depends on the athlete. And this is very unscientific, but I would say 80% of athletes really need the mental work. You look at somebody like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant, two of the best to ever play, did a lot of mental work. Yeah. Um, so I would say it's, it makes a big difference for everybody. But some people are naturally don't have performance anxiety, but that's really rare. Most people don't overly beat themselves up, but that's really rare. So most human beings are going to have this really heavy self-critical mind. They are going to worry a lot. They're going to ruminate about the past. And so you have to train the mind to do that in the right proportion, not eliminate it because you want the mind doing all of those things, right. but in the right proportion, you have to train for that. So I'd say high percentage, it would benefit a high percentage of athletes. So if, if I am preparing for, let's say a presentation, whether that be to employees or to a board, would you say one of the first steps you should do then is to take out a piece of paper or write down all of the things in your mind that you're either afraid of or things that could happen? Yeah, I think that's helpful. I think it's, it's helpful to think about what are some challenges I can face in preparing for this and executing this and afterwards. Almost like a pre-mortem. The post-mortem, you're looking back and say, what went wrong? You can pre-mortem and say, what are, doesn't necessarily have to be things that are going to go wrong, but what are going to be some challenges I might face? It could be procrastination, it could be all kinds of things, but I think that is helpful. It's almost like you're looking at the landscape ahead of time. And then what would the second step to that be in the same scenario on prepping for this big meeting or presentation? Yeah, I think you just go into execution mode of whatever your process is to put that presentation together and keep your mind focused on that. It's easy to focus about what happened back there, what's going to happen ahead, but training your mind, whatever you're doing, to stay focused on that. So you start executing that preparation, whatever that looks like for you, and you kind of try to stay in that spot until you're done. What about visualizing what that presentation would, would be or you're, you being successful in that? I imagine athletes do a lot of that work. Have you seen that have a big impact? Yeah, I have a, so my view on visualization is maybe a little different than some, and I'm not saying, and I'm not an expert in that. So kind of where we go is not so much visualize that good result. It's much more, I wouldn't call it visualizing, but like we just talked about, think about the challenges you might face and how you're going to respond to them. And I'll give you an example. One of the podcasts I did, the podcaster was talking about uh, Tiger Woods. She was talking to another golfer, and the golfer was kind of trained, when I go up to take my tee shot, I picture a beautiful drive landing on the fairway. And he was golfing with Tiger on that day, and Tiger said, well, you might think about visualizing what happens when you don't hit it on the fairway. So in other words, you're not preparing yourself to hit it a great tee shot every time, that's never gonna happen. And so instead, I'm not saying you expect it to be bad, but you expect, you know that you're not gonna hit them all on the fairway, so it becomes much more about thinking about your resilience and your ability to respond when that doesn't go well versus thinking every shot's going to be right where you want it. 
And that's a little counter to the way a lot of people. Well, no, I think that's I think that still makes a ton of sense when you're you're visualizing different scenarios. Michael Phelps had is a great example of this, where he visualized that when he was swimming in the Olympics that someone would have like stepped on his goggles or they would come loose and he wouldn't be able to see. And that actually happened to him. So he he thought about all the different scenarios, visualized what would happen, and just executed as if he was there before. And I think that that seems to me be very powerful in the sense that if you can put yourself in a place, think about all the different scenarios that could happen, and then try to do it before it actually happens, then when, then when you're standing up and you're actually giving the presentation, you're like, oh, well, I, I had to deal with this. So then you just execute on that new plan. Yeah, I could see the benefit of that. And I think part of the work that we do gets your mind in a place where you could even possibly do that. Most people can't sit and visualize anything because their mind's just going all over the place. Yeah, which is kind of what I want to get back to as well, is that this monkey mind, right? We're, we have so many thoughts, and I'm sure you have great stats on, on these, and I've heard you say them before, but we have so many thoughts, and our minds are going a million miles per hour, and you're when you're even having a conversation with someone, you could be thinking about the next meeting or what am I gonna eat for dinner, like anything, right? How do you become more present with people, whether that be in a conversation and what you're doing? It seems to me when you're playing sports or you're maybe at a concert or you're actively like doing something fun or that you love, you're kind of forced to be present. And I think that is this perpetual cycle of why we like to do those things. But what are some things you can do when you're not necessarily at a concert or playing sports to make yourself more present to enjoy the, the, the moment that you're in? Yeah, so I know you've, got a, you've had a fitness journey. You're obviously very fit. You've put a lot of effort into that. So how did you become physically fit and more healthy? One, uh, one step at a time. I, yeah. And you actually had to do something. Yeah. You didn't just decide, I've decided to become more physically fit and healthy. Therefore, right. I, wish, I wish I could have done that. Yes. I just took a pill. and. Yes. <laughs> so people think of the mind that way. Like, I just need to quit worrying. I need to be in the moment more. I need to quit with the monkey mind. It doesn't work like that. So to get there, you can get there, but just like physical fitness, there's mental fitness, and you have to do the steps that actually work. And if you go through the right training regimen, your mind will slow down, but you wanna be thinking about the past, because you think about that, like, I, what I like to talk about is why is the mind doing all this in the first place? It's thinking about the past so we can learn from it. Doesn't want you to repeat mistakes, which is, by the way, what's the very motive of your own brain? Is it to screw you up or is it to help you? And so you have to start with my brain's there to help me. And the reason why maybe it's not functioning the way it should is because no, nobody's taught me how to use it. I don't know how my thoughts and emotions work. So you have to start with the premise that the mind's doing that. So you back up and go, I'm gonna think about the past and because I wanna learn from it. I wanna think about the future because I wanna prepare for it. I wanna mitigate problems. I wanna respond well to problems. And so you don't make an enemy out of that. And so when your mind starts doing that, again, expect the expected. I'm gonna think about the past. I'm gonna think about the future. I'm gonna think about what I want. That's all completely normal. I'm gonna have all these emotions. I separate, it's just my brain. I embrace, it's not my enemy. 
I'm thinking about that person that did me wrong two weeks ago. Embrace, it's okay to think that, feel that feeling. And then it'll start to pass and you evaluate and go, well, maybe I don't want to spend my attention there. Maybe I want to prepare for that board meeting I'm doing. And so it's a process of doing that over and over and controlling the controllable. And then the mind will start to regulate itself. You'll start to create this balance that we talked about with Joe Bolte Taylor from the beginning. I can think about the past. I can think about the future, but I can also be right here, right now. I can think about the things I don't like about myself and that I want to be better but I can also experience that maybe I'm perfect exactly the way I am. Kind of these things are fleeting in and out, but now you're experiencing kind of two opinions versus one opinion, which is I'm never good enough. It's always about the past. It's always about the future. It's always about vacation. You have to work at it, but you have to do the right things. So what are those right things? How do I start working on it? Get your expectations right. Learn to separate, embrace, evaluate. You don't really have to use that acronym. I think that helps, but separate yourself from your thoughts and emotions. They're not your enemy. They're normal. Maybe self-criticism is a good thing to talk about. Should we get into that a little bit? Yeah. So number one, everybody beats up on themselves. Expect the expected. Why is the mind doing that? Because my mind wants me to get better. And think about this. You've done a lot. You've been very successful, helped a lot of people. Is it ever in your mind like, oh man, I've arrived? Never, that's the title of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which, is, which is crazy, because you think that you're striving for something for this finite place, and you, what you realize is there, is no, there, there isn't one. It just keeps going and going and going. You're never going to be there, just like your podcast right. says. You're not almost there. But on the other hand, maybe you are. And so again, these two conflicting things, but this one thing in my mind, I even, when I look back and look at this, I'm gonna think of all the screw ups and things I could have done better or whatever. That's just what my brain does. But I don't look at that as a big deal anymore. I expect it. I expect my mind to be somewhat critical. I expect that two years from now, I'm gonna look back and go, wow, I've come a long way. And then it's just gonna keep going my whole life. So I expect my brain to be chiming in on what I can do better. It's just not an indictment on me as a person anymore. I don't look at it as criticism. I look at it like if you were coaching me and you're just giving me coaching advice. That's embracing that voice. But what are we taught to do with self-criticism? What do most people say? Well, you just beat yourself up. Yeah, don't beat yourself up. Yeah. Now I'm creating an enemy out of that versus going, that's my mind trying to make sure two years from now I'm up here instead of down there. Yeah, I like that. And there's another part of your brain that says there is no up there. You're already fine the way you are. And so that's that these two conflicting things that are in our mind that you have to balance and they're never perfect. But that's a good example of not making an enemy out of your mind and embracing it. When you ask about what are things you can do. So expect the self-criticism, separate from it, embrace it, evaluate. And we always find when we look back that I'm sure you're harder on yourself than other people are on you. Yes. That's true agree. with most people. And so over time, what you'll start to get is more objectivity about was I really that bad or was it just my mind? Your mind will start to balance out and these things will start to happen naturally by doing these steps. Now, the other thing you can do, there's meditation and we have an app that has meditation, has all of these things and that can help as well. I'm always cautionary about that because if people look at mindfulness or meditation as the whole solution, 
And again, it depends on how you're doing it, but I look at that as only part of the solution and the other things we've talked about before as more important. And these things augment these things I'm talking about. One thing before we, we move on, I would say people get so caught up in all of the things that could happen is they tend to not start anything. Like unless they have like the perfect plan or they're just so worried about what other people are thinking about them. And even like when I created this podcast, I didn't have a perfect plan for it, but I knew I needed to start. And to your point, I listened to the first episode I've ever done the other day and I was like, oh, I was like, <laughs> to listen to it. Not proud of it, right? And, and I'm like, but that's okay. You know, like I said I was gonna do that. I said it to myself, I know I'm gonna learn. I know over time I'm gonna be more myself when I'm talking you still kind of cringe at those moments, but that, and I think that's, that's why like some people don't like to watch themselves on video. But I guess the point I'm making is just start. Even if you don't have the plan, you're gonna learn so much from starting something. I don't care what it is. If it's a fitness journey, if it's a diet, if it is uh, whatever, you name it. But just starting the process is so huge. And then from that point, then you just learn and build and go and figure out what you like and what you don't like. And then you start to develop those skills, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I would just, I've known so many people that are so talented that are just afraid. Oh yeah. And I think that's such a big thing to me. You know, it's just like, who cares? Just go, just go do it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, obviously I'm very biased and I have a lens I look through, but my lens is like, start with the mind, get the mind right, and the stuff you're talking about will just automatically happen. You'll have fear, but it won't be insurmountable. You'll be able to press through. And it's kind of like what I was talking about before. Some people stay here because they're afraid to move, and some people are moving all the time because they feel like they gotta move to have any kind of happiness at all, right? And so in between is kind of reality, and it's this whole thing of making it happen versus letting it happen. It's a dance. And people like you and maybe people like me and a lot of the people I work with are all about making it happen because that works for us. But sometimes there's a time to let it happen and everything we're talking about to me starts to come in the right proportion if you train your mind the right way. And then you will be able to overcome fear, but sometimes that fear is well-placed and you shouldn't go do that thing, right? And so how do you know the difference? You gotta keep working on your mind and then over time you make better decisions. So going back to the meditation side and mindfulness, because I think those two words are interchangeable even though they're, they're a bit different. What do you say to the person that just can't relax or try to even practice like micro moments of meditation, whether that's taking 30 seconds. How, how do you get to a point where you can actually start to implement that or not necessarily convince someone, but like what's a good practice to start that, I guess? Yeah, it gets back to expectations. So some people's expectations of meditation is it's gonna be calming, my mind's gonna clear, it's gonna feel good. And for many people, it's the opposite. Their mind gets more cluttered, they feel more anxious, they wanna, they wanna get up and move. 
And so it's teaching people that meditation isn't about how you feel in the moment, although sometimes it's amazing. And over time, it can feel really good while you're meditating. That's not what it's about. It's about what it does for your mind outside of the meditation. So whether you sit there and your mind wanders and you feel anxious and even angry when you're meditating, or you feel blissful and calm, that's really not the point. The point is it's gonna build gray matter in your prefrontal cortex. It's gonna calm your limbic brain down over time. And so for me, the message is don't think of yourself as being good or bad at it. There is no such thing. There's either do it or don't do it. If you do it, you'll get a benefit. And if you don't, you won't. It's like lifting weights or running. You may love to run, I may hate to run. Either way, if we both run, we're both gonna get a benefit regardless of how it feels when we do it. So that's what I'd say about meditation. And then mindfulness, kind of the same. Like, to me, mindfulness isn't I'm gonna be in the present moment all the time or even 80% of the time or even 50% of the time. It's having the capacity where my mind wants to be there more often than it is now. And then having the agency to say, hey, I'm talking to Joe right now but I might be thinking about something I'm doing later, but I have the agency to bring it back and go, I can put more of my presence, my attention here, but also knowing that's gonna take some time to get there. I'm not gonna do that in one month or two months. Yeah, to me, it's, it's also about like the deliberate action of something and the, and the purpose behind what you're doing. Um, yeah, something I've been all over lately, which I think can really help people, it's helped me, as well, like going through COVID. Again, one of the reasons I love working in pro sports is because there's something about being in that level of competition, which is just insane. When you get up close to it and you see how hard it is, and you think about the very best players in each sport, but there's 98% that aren't that, that are just scraping it out for years, trying to be in this really highly competitive, highly visible, getting critiqued all the time environment. Um, and so, working with bench players, people that aren't playing a lot. Now you and I might look at them and go, okay, you're making one to $5 million a year. You're playing the sport you love. You're traveling around seeing these great places. People think you're great. How can you not be happy? But most bench players are not happy. In fact, most pro athletes aren't happy if you look at the statistics. Right. So how is that? And so what I do with bench players, and this relates exactly to all of us, the reason why a bench player is not happy is because they're comparing their success to what they want their role to be. Bench player wants to be contributing and playing, even starting. That's what they've been doing their whole life. Don't forget these are the best of the best of the best. Now I'm sitting on the bench not doing anything. So they're feeling like they're losing. They're very unhappy. And then what happens to their attitude? Then what happens to their chances of playing more. So you see the downward spiral that goes in and people will come to them and go, quit being so selfish. You should appreciate what you have and all of this kind of thing like that. Be more positive and all this stuff. It doesn't work. And so for me, it's like, I try to get them to realize this is what your role is. I know this is what you want your role to be. This is what it is. So how can you win at your role? And then I just have them list the things out. And what they're gonna say invariably is, be coachable, be a good teammate, have a good attitude, show up for my workups on time, do the extra work. Like it's all obvious stuff. And the other thing it is, it's all within their control. And so then they can shift their attitude and I even try to get coaches to set goals with them so they can succeed and go, did you do all these things this week? 
great, you totally killed it. You killed it. It doesn't matter how much you play because you're not in control of that. And then they start to feel happy or about what they're doing. Their energy changes and it gives them that best chance then. And that's the other thing I'll ask them. I go, if you're the head coach and you're looking at the 9, 10 guy on the bench or 11 or 12 in a basketball scenario, what are you looking for? And it's obvious. It's all the stuff we just talked about. So then they start to be able to win at that uh, and then they're happier and they perform better. Same thing in life because let's just say that you were my boss before and I loved you and you were great to work for and you gave me rope and you appreciated what I did and now I switched to somebody else who's not like that. Now I'm living in my expectation of what I think a boss should be and what I want it to be and I'm miserable versus going, no, that's not what my role is anymore. This is the hand I'm dealt. How can I win at this hand? That works in your marriage. It works with raising kids. It works with everything. You got to get in line with what reality is and come up with a game plan at winning at that. And then you'll start to get these things that you want, which is maybe to get promoted, get, get a different job or whatever, because it's coming out of this rate activity. But my point is the way to get there is to go through this process of expect the expected. You're not always going to have a great boss. You're not always going to get what you want. You apply a seed in the emotion. And then controlling the controllable is playing the hand I'm dealt. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure people can relate to all of the stress during COVID and now going back into the workforce. Not that they weren't in the workforce before, but maybe going into an office. And I know some people that are faced with they had flexibility and now they may not have flexibility or the flexibility they, they did have over the last year or so. And they have to they have to think about their life and really what makes them happy in, in different ways. So um, I think uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. What uh, what do you say to the person that's just constantly overwhelmed, that's watching this and has this attitude, sounds great but it doesn't work for me. I'm sure you've had that in the, in the past or maybe you're even working with some current clients that are that doubt that they can actually use techniques to improve their lives in these ways. Do, is there something that they can do that's outside of what we said today to get them started? Yeah, great question. And I'll point out I'm not a psychologist or a clinical psychologist, so if you really have extreme anxiety, you should probably seek professional help. But a lot of people that I've worked with feel like they're anxious all the time. So it's hard for them to think about embracing that. Like, why would I embrace that? And so I would say it's a longer road for those people. And by the way, a lot of pro athletes are like that. I mean, think about it. If you're going to be the best of the best of the best, you've got to have this dog mentality. Nothing's ever good enough. And you can feel a lot of anxiety and feel like you've got to be in this cycle all the time. And so I would just say you've got to wade in there and work at this. And a little bit of it is like, embrace the fact that you're anxious. Embrace the fact that you're a perfectionist and it's never good enough. Because that embracing, it's almost like if you're a coach and you're coaching me and you're so hard on me, if I would just open up and go, hey man, he's just trying to help me, he's just coaching me, that would take it down a little bit. So that's what I would say, give yourself time. Uh, and over time, you can change the feeling of that experience or just learn to live with your brain doing that. And that alone can really help. I see there's, there's a lot today, what appears to be anxiety. 
And I think social media can perpetuate this where you're watching people and they seem perfect or they're doing things that you think you should be doing. And even though you're trying to kind of separate yourself away from that, you can't help but feel these like gaps in your life by looking at what other people have or they don't have. And you and I have realized this in different ways in that like happiness is not based on the success of something. It's this ongoing thing you're constantly striving for. But what other tips can you provide those people that are constantly looking at life through the eyes of others? Great question. When I work in high schools, you see a lot of stress and anxiety there. Even in high schools where the kids have a lot of advantages, like where they have money and things and they're gonna to go to a good college. I mean, a lot of things are set up for them, right? You think about suicide rates. They're highest in these kind of high achieving pockets. You know, why is that? And it comes down to expectations, what you're talking about, and social media perpetuates this. But if you ask a young kid today, uh, like what, what should you be looking for in life? Well, do something I love, do something that has flexibility so I can have work-life balance, I need to be helping people, I need to have impact, I need to be able to rise quickly, there need to be good people there. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a job, it sounds like you want a prize. And so this pressure of I gotta find something I love and that helps other people and has it checks these 10 boxes is really hard. And it brings the pressure down to what I do today is gonna affect what I can get into X college and like, I never experienced that when I was in school. I wasn't thinking about any of this stuff, probably to an extreme the other way. But my point is, you have to get your expectations in line with reality. Because if I have to have this perfect job and 5% body fat and helping other people and have this great spiritual connection, I, you, the list goes on and on and on, it's insurmountable. And so people are in this constant process of feeling like they're not good enough because they're not doing the 20 things it takes to be good enough. And that's why I say it's an internal job. Because when you get the inside right, the Joe Bolte Taylor, I am fulfilled, I am complete, I am enough. And at the same time, I'm not complete. I see all my things that aren't good and that could be better, but at least I have this balance. And then you have this perspective of what do I really wanna do to work on or to improve my life. And a lot of it comes down to accepting the role that you have, the life that you have, and doing the best with it. It really does come down to that. People would like to say, if you have a big goal and you work hard and you don't quit, you'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. Maybe that's true, but my work in pro sports tells me that that's not true. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff beyond your control for you to be able to get wherever it is, be a big time CEO or run a big foundation, help tons of people, whatever those things are, not everybody can do those things. And so being happy with the life that you have allows you to have this fulfillment internally that I can give to other people. And it gives me then the best chance to have the best life I can have with the talents I have without feeling like to feel good, I gotta go make these things happen out there, which doesn't work, doesn't provide the fulfillment. You gotta find the fulfillment in here, or maybe it's here, or maybe it's in the divine. I let people figure out themselves, but it is internally and it's access to the brain, whatever the ultimate source is. And then I have something that I can give. Because you think about the narcissism of, 
I need to do what I love, I need to help other, I, 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 you get this whole list of things versus I already have what I want and now I'm giving it to others. Now it's not perfect like that, it's, it's both at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also think you can get so consumed in content. There is no shortage of it. And now there's even more apps like Clubhouse where you can spend 12 hours a day just like listening to other people talk, right? And then you have YouTube and you have podcasts and you have books and you have social media, you have Instagram, and there's no shortage of that. And one of the things that I've realized is once you kind of know what you want to do, limit yourself to how much more input that you want. Because a lot of the plan that you know how to do it, you don't need any, you don't even need to listen to this podcast to get you through some of these things. You just need to create a plan and you need to execute on that plan. You don't necessarily need a thousand thousand different recipes coming at you because thematically you start to see patterns. That, that to me is a big actionable one to like stop consuming so much content because you're not going to be able to execute on what you want to do in your life. Have you seen that as well? A hundred percent. And I w- what I would add, you said, get a, get a, you know what you want to do, get a plan and start doing it. I would just add, get your mind right. Right. Well, that's part of the plan. That's part of the plan. That's, that's, that is step one. If you get the mind right, then you'll have more clarity of like, what do I really need to improve? And I don't need to do anything. That's such a beautiful place to be in. Like, I don't need to do anything. I just choose to do something because I want to. I I like to say fulfilled and inspired. Fulfilled, I'm complete, I'm enough, and I'm inspired to do more. So the fact that I have enough isn't going to make me sit on my couch. I'm inspired to do more. And we're sort of taught, and I always believed I have to feel like I don't have enough and want more and I'm incomplete so I can be striving to complete myself and self-actualize and do these things so I can feel better. It's actually, I believe, the opposite. And so when you create that opposite, then exactly what you're talking about, consuming, I'm out there looking for the world to give me this answer that I'm missing when you don't need that. That doesn't mean like, there's great stuff that you have on your podcast that can help people, but again, like this nonstop consuming of information. I always like to talk about even like getting healthy. Everybody knows how to do it. Yeah, there are better ways to do it, but I'm just saying, you just, we need to execute on what we already know versus finding a ton of new information for the most part. Now, of course, there, there's information that you can get. But some of the people I work with, I'll tell them, like, don't read a book for a month. Don't listen to a podcast for a month. Like, you need to, like, get away from that. Right. And so I agree with what you're saying totally. It's true. Even, even myself, I have this podcast. I do a lot of research on my guests for the podcast. And then I have personal goals and family goals and goals with my wife that I want to achieve. And if I just took that time... Unless I was making them, uh, unless I was doing two things at once, like as an example, if I'm training for like, uh, like yesterday I ran 19 miles training for a Spartan race, I'm listening to content, right? But if I like went home and then listened to more content, it's like what, am, what I'm gaining there, I might be gaining something, but it's not worth it versus like spending that time in executing or being present with my kids or doing all these other things. And that, that's this, this spiraling effect. And I actually got off Clubhouse. I'm, and 
I'm not like participating a ton in it because I'm like, here's another place that I am going to go and listen to and consume more content when I could achieve a 99.999% of what I want to achieve by implementing all the knowledge that I've gained <laughs> over my lifetime, right? And there's always great people to learn from and there's always hacks in your diet and there's things like that. But that, I love that example because you, everyone in this room, like everyone knows, everyone that I know knows what to do to lose weight or to eat better, yet we're still gonna buy these diet books and we're still gonna listen to podcasts on weight loss, right? Even though you already know it. Now, once you've achieved that and you can't lose any more weight, that's when you may wanna dive into that. But certainly for most people, there's a, there's a baseline to dive into and implement what they already know. Yeah, and there's something beautiful about um, maybe coming to the place of like, I don't wanna change my body. Right. I'm, that's fine, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, because, because the world's telling me to, and it, it, there's all these different reasons, but it's just, we're compulsed to do a lot of things because of our automatic mind that's been conditioned by whatever it's been conditioned by. And when you get all that right, you start to be able to see, well, actually, maybe I don't need to like do that. But if I don't have to do anything, but I might be inspired to do that. And that's a totally different place of saying, I need to lose weight or get in shape or whatever, so I feel better. It's better to feel better about yourself, and then if you decide to do that, you do or you don't. Yeah, that makes sense. And what's crazy about this, Joe, is this is why I like working in pro sports, because people might say, well, yeah, that sounds good, but it's not really gonna work in highly competitive environments. It totally works in highly competitive environments. Because the stress and the pressure of trying to be the best all the time against the best in the world, that's what people don't get. They go, well, these people are insanely talented. So are the other people trying to stop them. Right. It, letting go, you were talking about surrender early on, sort of surrendering that gives them the freedom then to be the best possible athlete they can be to give them the best chance to do it. It's not a fairy tale. Everybody's not gonna make it. And you see that when you get in that world. It's, it's incredible. When I was working Major League Baseball, 4% of minor league base, baseball players make it to the bigs. Four out of 100. Doesn't matter how big their dream is, doesn't how, how much they don't quit, or any of these buzzwords, four out of 100 are gonna make it. And so sort of surrendering that outcome, getting your mind right, and then be able to like go for it without all this, you're gonna feel stress and pressure, but I'm saying lowering it dramatically gives you the best chance, and it's the same in life, at work, and at home. And, and right there, that's the point I wanna drill home, that what's your alternative? I always say like, play it out. You're gonna be so bottled up and stressed out that you're not gonna be able to perform and you're gonna be one of those, you're, you're gonna be part of the 96% that don't make it. Like almost guaranteed, right? If you're just that tense. But if you surrender and you allow yourself that freedom, that flexibility, that mental clarity, that you have nothing to lose, then you might be that 4%. And I, I would bet most of that 4% is, are those folks that don't internalize things so much that they're not, they don't get so bottlenecked with fear. Or they're insanely talented. Yeah. They're just better than you. But, but even like, I was listening to Tim Grover's book yesterday actually on that run winning. Um, and he, he talks about Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan and the differences between them. And he said Michael Jordan trained smarter, but Kobe trained harder. 
and he would be training him at and have to be on call at two, three in the morning. And then he would, Kobe would be like, I want to practice. And he'd wake up and Tim would practice with him. And then an hour and a half into it, Tim's like, you, you need to go to bed. You need to sleep. And he purposely wouldn't leave because he knew Kobe was going to sneak back in the gym 15 minutes later. So even someone at that level, that talent, and how much work they're putting into it, because they wanted to be that 1% better. And, that, and he also says in the book, like, like winning's messy. You know, if you think about it, if I think about even my run yesterday, which isn't even close to being a professional athlete or doing what they do, but it's messy, you know, like the whole thing. And, and if you think about really many great things in life, they're not perfect. I think about creating and selling the, the, the businesses that I have. It was more messy than clean from partner stuff to employees to cash flow to clients. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, it's it's crazy. Like I think about it, it's not this linear, perfect path that people tend to see. It's the messiness to get you to a point where you can start to drive the outcomes that you want. Yeah, the outside looking in, they see what you've done and go, "Well, he's this, this, that, and the other." But there was a lot of shit you had to go through, and that's kind of what expect the expected is. Is like you would tell any entrepreneur this is what you can expect. Right. Because everybody has the same story. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but everything you just talked about, partners and cash flow and employee, like, right? Right. And then here are the emotions you're gonna feel, and so that's a lot of it. And then getting back to the 90% that don't make it, or 96% in, in, in baseball, like my whole point to them is, even if you do make it, it's not gonna make you happy. And there's tons of videos that show that, and so, and even if you do make it and you are happy, it's not going to last forever. You're going to have to do something after that. And so let's go through this journey and then you can maybe be a baseball coach or play in basketball. Maybe you play in Europe or maybe you play in China or whatever. Like maybe you're a coach. So in other words, your, your, whole, your life's not over. Like whatever happens, you're just set up for the next thing. Yeah, right on. Well, I know we're running short of time. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? No, I think you hit on a lot of points, uh, you know, that are really, I think, important and things that I think are really valuable. There's nothing that's sticking out in my mind. Well, it's always great to spend time with you. And thanks again for being here and being part of my life, the life of Dealer Inspire, being one of our first guests at Refuel and, and just being on this podcast. It's, it's been amazing to get to know you over these years. How can people find out more about you? Yeah, so they can go to visionpursue.com and they can learn about the corporate training stuff we do and sports training stuff we do. Most of what we do is group training. That's probably the best place. And the app, the Vision Pursue app. And there's the Vision Pursue app that you can get on the app store. And thank you, man. Like all the stuff you do, like it's really cool. And having worked with some of your clients now from Dealer Inspire, how much they love you and what you do. So you're helping a lot of people. I appreciate it. You've been a great inspiration and help to me. Oh, well, thank you very much. It was great to spend time this morning, Russ. Thanks, Joe.